Welcome to Chinuch Today with Rabbi Yerachmiel Garfield, where we highlight innovative ideas and inspiring people from the world of Chinuch. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chinuch Today. This is Yerachmiel Garfield, and I'm excited to introduce to you one of my Rebbeim, my Rosh Hashiva, Harav Baral Wein Shlita, who will be joining us from his home in Yerushalayim. Rabbi Wein has been a Rosh Hashiva and a Rav for many years. As you will hear, he started out as a Rav in Miami Beach, then moved to Muncie, where he opened Yeshiva Sha'arei Torah, which in its day was quite an innovation as it embraced and celebrated, in addition to Lamude Kodesh, having a very robust Lamude Chol program, a general studies program. And I actually went to Rabbi Wein's high school for 11th and 12th grade and can attest that in addition to a very strong Lamude Kodesh, the general studies program was quite robust with SAT prep and computers and other aspects that made it pretty serious. And Rabbi Wein is someone who is known for Jewish history and very much focused his high school on the past, on a model that you'll hear about from his grandfather and tried to mimic what he had created years prior in Skokie Yeshiva. And I think this highlights one of the tensions that exists in Chinuch and how we approach innovations. As this podcast is titled, the Chinuch Today podcast, focusing on tools for schools and innovations and the people behind them in the space of Jewish education, clearly we're looking for new ideas. But we also know that those new ideas must be grounded on our rich history and on the values that have gotten us thus far. I think this is really a source of tension between different schools of thought, where some are very keen on holding on to old values and old ways, while other Rabbanim and communities are much more comfortable embracing and exploring new ways of connecting, and new means of relating to children. There are many examples that one could look for, whether it be the innovation of a chalkboard, which uh, was asked the Lubavitcher Rebbe if that was okay to use a chalkboard, or whether or not you talk about the use of radio or video or other similar innovations. And even to this day, as schools want to embrace computer uses and how much internet to use and how much individual screen time to give. These are all questions of innovation that need to be explored and done very thoughtfully. And that's why I thought that although the podcast is really focused on innovations and new ideas, it was so helpful and interesting to have an opportunity to talk to Myra Shashiva, Rabbi Barrow Wine, about the past and his understanding and connection to the previous values and how he used those as a bridge to the future. Rabbi Wine has been an innovator in all of his years. He developed the Jewish History cassette series, which was really one of the first Torah programs that was distributed very widely through cassettes then CDs, then MP3s, and now through downloads. He also developed movies that were also innovative in his day, starting with the Rambam and Rashi, and he's now coming out with a video on the Barbanel. And he has never shied away from looking to innovation and finding new ways to connect to the Jewish people far and wide. So it's a real honor for us to welcome to Chinook Today podcast, Rabbi Beryl Wine, visiting us from Yerushalayim. What an honor it is to welcome my Rebbe, Rabbi Beryl Wine, Ashlita, who has a, a quite a story of uh, different roles in, in Jewish life that you've played, Rabbi Wine, and you've always been a real inspiration to me and so many others. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Garfield. Rabbi Wine, there's so much we could talk about. This podcast is really dedicated to chinuch and to aspects of 
ideas in Chinuch, innovations in Chinuch. So I want to look at that part of your story and the things you've done. But before we get into that, if you could just uh, just briefly tell us uh, the early days. I believe you were brought up in Chicago. I know your father was a Rav there. What yeshivas did you learn in in the early days? I only learned in one yeshiva in Beis Latoro, the Hebrew Theological College in Chicago. I entered when I was 11. Wow. I uh, was there 11 years. And uh, the yeshiva was a great place. It's celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. Wow. Who were some of the, uh, you know, the primary leaders at that time of that place, the yeshiva? Well, the the, uh, Rabbi Chaim Christworth of Russian memory, the Krakmer Ely, was the Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Mordechai Rogov, Mendel Kaplan, his brother Herzl Kaplan, Rabbi David Kaganov, Rabbi Zelik Starr, and great, great Tamadi Chachomim, all who were European. Hmm. And uh, so we got the full full package of Europe yet. Hmm. Which, uh, with all the greatness that we have today, I don't mean to demean anything, God forbid. But what the Eastern European, Lithuanian Jews were, that doesn't exist anymore. And uh, I yearn to be able to see uh, such people again. What was it about them, generally speaking? What were the common First of all, they were enormous scholars. Enormous. Secondly, they were scholars in breath. They knew everything. Hmm. The same Rebbe that taught us Gemara, taught us Tanakh, and taught us Chumash. And Chumash was not a vort. Chumash was, what did it say? What does Rashi say? What does he mean? I mean, it was meat and potatoes all the time. And uh, they all had a sense of humor. Hmm. And they all had low expectations in life, which I think was the hallmark of Eastern European Jewry and which is probably the uh, one of the great problems of American Jewry today. You mean lower expectations in Gashmias and physical? Yeah, uh, yeah. Lower You know, my father never owned an automobile. He never owned his own home. He didn't expect to. I didn't expect to either. We were coming out of the American Depression. It was a. Uh, Everybody was poor, but since everybody was poor, nobody was poor, you know what I mean? But nobody had extra money, nobody had leisure money, nobody had vacation money. I could not have gone to college had I not earned scholarships that paid for everything, even for law school. Do you think that lack of materialism is what contributed to their scholarship? Well, scholarship and materialism don't go together usually. Because uh, once you start chasing the mechanical rabbit, you never catch up. Your mind is pretty much absorbed. So, uh, But on the other hand, I don't wish anybody to be poor, God forbid. I don't wish anybody not to have a home, not to have an automobile. Right. There's sort of, I don't know if the word is irony, but there's sort of a catch-22 where we strive to make our lives as comfortable as we can which is a natural human aspiration. So there's a difference between comfort and luxury. I think that there's yeah. a line somewhere. There's a line somewhere that I remember uh, when I was a lawyer. So uh, I always drove an Oldsmobile or, uh, you know, a, a, what was then a, a high-end car. 
because the senior partner in our firm insisted that that's how we should make our appearance. And I became a rabbi all my life. I drove a Plymouth, a Ford. It got me to where I wanted to go. I didn't even do one every three years. I know it was, there's a line, you know, everybody has to find their own line. I wonder, when we look at the Chinuch landscape today, 2023, there's so much learning going on. And not only is it the number of people learning, but the technology that we're able to leverage in terms of Otsar Chachma and the, you know, and, and, and special, even the special education, the sophistication that we have about understanding education. But yet, but yet we are so, our system is so far from producing the kinds of people that you interacted with in your youth. Because I think that that's a societal thing and not an educational thing. I think you can have the best schools in the world if your society represents certain values. That's what's going to turn out. Even in the heart of B'nai Brock. It's not just even, in uh Even know, in the heart of B'nai Brock. San Francisco. Absolutely. And so that's, it's door, 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 shop. That's the society. That's the, I think we have to uh, put a greater emphasis on coping with society and improving it than we do. We, uh, we put a lot of emphasis on knowledge and on, uh, you know, uh, education and accomplishment and hours, et cetera. But uh, we rarely think about what the effect of society is upon us and our families. It's a very difficult thing because you cannot isolate yourself from society. And I mean, the individual can, but not the people. Right. And uh, so, uh, but it was always like this. I mean, the, uh, the Jews in the Second Temple had to deal with Greek and Roman society. Jews in Europe had to deal with Christian society. I always wondered about it. When I would hear Shmuzin, not in Shari Torah so much, but in some of the other fine yeshivas that I was able to study in, when I hear Shmuzin about the world is in its lowest place and humanity is now so bereft of spirituality, I think back to the Romans and the Greeks where they were chasing each other naked, fighting lions, and I wonder, like, oh, was that society so much more sophisticated? I want to tell you that what we're going through is a replay of past societies. There's nothing new here. You know, the Roman Greece were uh, a pagan, homosexual, uh, immoral, uh, murderous society. I mean, I think we're a little better than that. I, I think, I mean, you know, there are concerns in our society, but, uh, you know, we respect and protect the rights of the downtrodden of different races, of different dis- people with disabilities. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, there's that, so much good going on. The, the problem is it's not to protect people. It's not to force other people to believe your ideas. That's the basic problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't have to prove to me and uh, parade in front of my house uh, that I should be tolerant of you. I'm tolerant of you. But don't stick it to me. And that's true of a hundred other things in the world. There are people who are transgender, right? So they have to be protected. But not that everybody has to say that, you know, we should try to be transgender. Right. I guess the question is, when you're somehow assessing society today versus uh, 1,500 years ago, I would think 
that when we look at the world, the non-Jewish world, the broader world, the morality, the standards, the Judeo-Christian ethic has brought them further along. No? No question. But uh, in our uh, current uh, situation, the Judeo-Christian ethic is under attack. True. Under very serious attack. I want to add, you know, it's Charles Dickens. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. Yeah. So it depends how you want to look at it. It depends how you deal with it. Well, as it relates to developing the type of people that we started talking about, the European... Yeah, but that's gone. We're not going to do that. I think you got to... Houston, Texas is not going to produce that. Right. Can't. Took a thousand years to do it, and it's gone. And goodbye. So now we have to produce what we can produce. That's a good segue to the next uh, area, which was, so you were in Skokie and then in Yeshiva. Uh, it wasn't Skokie, it was Chicago. Right, Chicago. Yeshiva. And then did you learn in any other Yeshivas before going to law no. school? No. So then you went to law school and then became a, a lawyer and then yeah. a rav, I know, in Miami. Famous story right. about Ryan Rottenberg uh, helping you find that uh, that job. Ryan Kreisworth. Yes. Uh, all could be read in a wonderful book called Teach Them Diligently. Karin, put that out. Please uh, take a look at that. Wonderful stories in there. But then you came up north to work for the OU. And right. the head of five years. Yeah. So the question I have for you, the Mechanach, the Mechanachim all want to know, when did Chinuch become, I know you opened Shari Torah, the great citadel of Torah in Muncie. When did Chinuch become part of your agenda, part of your focus, part of your dream? Was that always the plan, or always the plan? My Zayda, my Ruben's theme of blessed memory, uh, who was a rogue in Chicago for many decades, was one of the founders of the yeshiva, and he uh, said a shear. He was a magid shear in the base medish there till almost to his last days, and I felt that uh, certain extent I wanted to emulate him. I also felt that uh, past experience would help a person become a better rabbi and a better mechanic. I mean, if it was up to me, which it is not, and it can't be, but if it was up to me, before anybody goes into Rabonis, or before anybody goes into Chinuch, he should go into business for five years. Hmm. And that will teach you life the way it is. And then when you go into Chinuch or you go into Rabbanis, you know what you're dealing with. You understand the people you're dealing with because you met them on a different level. Right. So uh, Did you, so that, you had that husband when you went to law school? I didn't have any husband. I went to law school because I got married, but nobody was paying for me. Got it. <laughs> there was a time when, you know, nobody had it. I didn't ever ask my father-in-law for money. He didn't have any, and I didn't ask him. Right. And my my parents never had any money. But but you said you had in mind Chinuch from the beginning. But, but I always wanted to be a rogue. That's what I wanted mm. to be. Like your father. There was no Rabonus available, and I had to make a living, so I was a lawyer for nine years. But, but, no, but it was extremely valuable to me. I saw people. 
So later on, when I was her own, I knew how to judge people in situations. Your grandfather, I, I assume it was your mother's father, was Rabbi, Rabbi Rubenstein? Yeah. He said? yeah. Was he from Europe? He was a Valoshan or Talmud. He was a student of Valoshan. He had Smith of them. And it's even Reb Chaim Brisker. Wow. He was a Chavrusa of the Major Terilui and of uh, Rav Cook. How did he, he end was, up in Chicago? Well, that's a great story. He, uh, he was, uh, for a period of time, uh, uh, my mother was born in Yerushalayim. Mm-hmm. He came to Yerushalayim uh, when Rav Cook came to Yafo, he came to Yerushalayim too. And they were starving to death, uh, literally starving to death. And the solution then, as it probably still is, uh, you go to America and raise money to bring back. To- mm-hmm. So they sent him to uh, the United States to raise money for the poor Jews in Jerusalem. And he ended up uh, raising money in a place in South Chicago. All sorts of problems arose there. And the Jewish community said to him, listen, Rebbe, uh, we need a rabbi. There's no rabbi here. You stay, you be the rabbi. We'll bring your family over. And that's how we came to Chicago. Wow. And how did he get involved in the, in the founding yeshiva? He took three young men and taught them in his front room. My bubba was their cook, and they slept in, their, in my father's grandfather's bedroom. That was 1919. Yeshiva wow. was founded in 1922. Did they have any an sons? Did he have any sons? Yes. Did they go into a chinuch or a One was a rabbi. The other was uh, in business. Interesting. They were pretty much victims of American society. It was mm. very hard. Yeah. Our connection is through our mothers, my cousins, etc., the mothers were the ones that kept it going. Very hard. Got it. So but I'm no... still I'm still wondering when Chinuch got involved. Meaning Rabbanus and Chinuch are two different things, right? I it's funny, I have a debate. You can answer this. Me and well, a dear they, friend they, in Atlanta. They, today they are, but uh, they <laughs> at one time they were not at all. Me and my yeah. dear friend yeah. in Atlanta, Rabbi Eastern Yom Europe, Europe, the Rub was the teacher in this in the town. So is that in your mind? I always taught, even when I was a lawyer. I, t- I had uh, a vod uh, that I taught in the yeshiva. I had classes on Shabbos. I always taught. But I was very active in uh, two of the day schools in Chicago and the yeshiva mm-hmm. as a uh, as a layman, as a balabos. So uh, that's also being involved in the chinuch. Absolutely. How many years was that, that you were a lawyer? Nine. Nine years. I have a debate with this rabbi in Atlanta, Benjamin Friedman, who I hope will be listening, about which is a harder job, being a Rav or being a Manal. Would you like to opine on that? Depends who you are, you know. Mm. There are people who are uh, naturally able to handle the rigors of the Ramonis. There are people who are able to handle the... uh, Tensions of being a manahel. Right. Part of the problem in life is that if you're doing the wrong thing, it's going to be uh, very, very uh, difficult for you. Right. And if, if you're a manahel, then you can't be a rub, right? Right. And if you're a rub, you shouldn't mix into the into running the day school. Yeah. 
different skills. So you're saying all the years, even when you were a lawyer, you always had in your heart to be involved in Chinuch, and then you ended up in Muncie as a Rav eventually. After no, that what year. happened is... How did you come to open a school? Open yeshiva. I was with the OU Kashers for five years. Right. So that was a wonderful experience, and uh, I think I did a very good job. But uh, again, uh, not satisfying to me, because to a certain extent, we always saw people at their worst. Hmm. Uh, I had a good friend, uh, Zev Wolfson, and he had connections with uh, foundations that uh, gave money for Chinuch. And I asked him to give me uh, seed money. And I said, I'm going to build a yeshiva in Shabbat Mamsi, but I can't raise the funds for the first year or two. And uh, he gave me the seed money. I, uh, and that's how Shari Torah started. Did you have a specific uh, vision that you felt was mechusser? Yeah, I wanted to rebuild what I had in my yeshiva. Because mm-hmm. I felt it was uh, vital. I felt it Having a good secular department was vital. I felt that the broad view was vital. I felt that uh, Avos soil and Avos soil was vital. Not political, but it was vital to, to give to the students. So my, my vision was uh, to replicate to whatever extent possible uh, what existed, uh, what existed in my high school and did you find that that message resonated with the uh, community in Muncie and beyond? That oh, people were... not at all. <laughs> not at all. You didn't do a lot of market research before you opened up? You didn't well, call I in knew, the... I knew Muncie, and Muncie was a tremendous place. Had wonderful people, but uh, it was not, uh, you know. So did you adapt what you were doing, or how did you deal with the and lack just, of resonance? I just ignored I ignored basically uh, the noise. That's right. Well, it, you know, was it complicated to be a rabbi that. and trying to get the yeshiva? Well, started? that that helped me, believe me or not. Why? Because on days that I was uh, very disappointed being a rabbi, I found refuge in the yeshiva. Hmm. And on days that I was very disappointed in the yeshiva, I found refuge of being a rabbi. Interesting. And politically, did you find yourself having to apologize to different oh, I constituencies? I didn't apologize to anybody, and I was attacked by a lot of people. But, uh, you know, so water under the dam now doesn't make a bit. I think you had mentioned that Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky gave you a lot of chizik at the Yaakov time. Yaakov Kamenetsky saved me a number of times. He was a great, great Jew in every respect. And he was one of the smartest people I ever met in my life. Hmm. Wow. He was street smarts. Right. And he himself uh, always told me that he, he was out of the box too a little. So, uh, you know, he wasn't nervous about it. What were some of the adjustments that you had to make to the yeshiva or early innovations or things that you did that you oh, felt? I tried to get the best rabbeim I could. What did you look for in a rabbi? Most of the rabbeim came, they came with their own agenda. They didn't come with my agenda. Hmm. It was always a push and pull. But if he was a good Rebbe and the boys liked him, so then uh, we made do with whatever we could do. How did you assess a Rebbe? What, what would you look for? Or how what would was you his commitment? His, first of all, his talents. Mm-hmm. A Rebbe has to have talents. 
But what was his commitment? What was his vision? What did he think was going to happen? I mean, being a rabbi is a job, but if that's all it is, is a job, it's not good. I am, I am a personal beneficiary of your good eye for that, and I was a Talmud of your high school and really benefited from tremendous rabbiim. Rabbi Abramsky, Rabbi Foyer. They were all very, very good. That's his theme. Very different. Very different. So for 25 years, it was, uh, you know, it's still very successful today. It's a different institution, but it's still very, today I'm probably more, we have a greater student body than I had, but uh, it's different. Okay. Uh, You know, there's nothing wrong with being different. Did you feel that the mission of yeshiva was more or less embraced by the community over time? Like, did it go in cycles, or were there a time when it was more accepted? Or The irony is, the more successful it was, the greater the opposition. If it would have been, you know, a failure, no, nobody cares. Hmm. But the fact that it uh, did have an influence, and it had an influence on the community, too. So that uh, that brought about Unfortunately, in our world, there's uh, there always are questions of turf. I was here first. Who are you? But that's uh, you know that that comes with the territory. I don't I don't know how that can be avoided. The only way that uh, that I felt you could respond to it is to the, to the best of your ability ignore it. I'm thinking to the many challenges of of running a yeshiva, and I'm I'm thinking back. Other than raising money, which I'm sure was a tremendous that's burden, a, that's a backbreaker. Yeah. What other aspects of running the yeshiva do you remember being really challenging? You always have students that are, uh, that your immediate reflexive action is throw them out. Mm-hmm. But Rabbi Yaakov told me that I was not allowed to throw out any student I accepted, except for two reasons. If he promoted pornography in the yeshiva, or if he was a thief. Hmm. Other than that, he said, you can't throw them out. You have to play with them. And some of those that I, I did not throw out and played with today are great educators and great Russian yeshiva. I'm sure other members of the Anhala struggled with that because they oh had to. Right. Oh. I can imagine. They had to deal with it. You know, they had to. Hey, but they're dealing with it in the trenches. Right. I'm dealing it for, you know, as right. the chief of staff. That's a different thing. But nevertheless, it's a difficult, difficult thing. And, uh, not everybody's a student, and not everybody uh, not everybody wants to be a student. Right. What do you do with them? Because in our time, if you don't go to yeshiva or to a good Jewish school, uh, the chances of remaining a Shomer Shabbos are very small. So you have to accommodate somehow. Did you ever have to ask a child to leave? Two or three, that, uh, yeah. Mm. But I never asked him to leave until I found another place for him to go to. And I informed where he was going, what the problem was, so they knew whether to accept him or not. I wonder if you think Shari Torah's mission would be more or less accepted today than it was when you opened it. If you tried to open it again, let's say not in Muncie, because Muncie itself has changed. But in the general American landscape, do you think... I think it would be a little harder, but I think it could be done. Why harder? Because of the society. Again, it's hard to tell a young man, you should go in the rabbinate, or you should become a mechanich when he can go to a hedge fund and make a half a million dollars a year, mm-hmm. or think he's going to make a half a million dollars a year. 
That's your competition today. Rabbi Wine, it's not a half a million. It's five million. <laughs> or whatever, you know. So, so I mean, that's your half competition. Half a million. Any, any accountant can make a half a million. A year is okay, going so for five. That's the an issue with Chinuch, finding uh, and, and Rabbanis, people wanting to go into that's right. it. And, so unless, uh, you know, to put it uh, poetically, unless the spirit moves you, it's difficult. It's, so to speak, the yeshiva world, the Haredisha world, that is much more successful in producing people that want to go into it than the modern Orthodox. The modern Orthodox should be the reservoir, the best ones. But they're going somewhere else. They're not interested in that. And that uh, then they want to know what happened to modern orthodoxy. The yeshiva world also is starting to suffer. Certainly. I mean, again, you cannot buttress yourself from all the pressures of society. It's, uh, because in the yeshiva world, there are also there are very high expectations. Correct. My father-in-law will support me. I will have a house. I will have a car. I'll go on vacation, Ben money. You know, you have once you have expectations, so then, then it's. I was referring more to Shari Torah's hashkafically sort of balanced. I don't want to oversimplify it by saying centrist, but I think you once wrote an article where you referred to it as Haredi light. So if you're comfortable with that explanation of it, but I'm not. I'm not comfortable with labels generally. I like the Jewish people. I love Eretz Yisrael. Shari Torah as a more inclusive hashkafic. So do you think that would be more or less accepted today than it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago? Yeah, but I, I think you could find 100 students that would find it acceptable. You don't have to, you don't have to build 50,000. Because in some way, we could say the world is more polarized. I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, is, do you think the firm world is more polarized in a sense today than it was 40 years ago? It's more polarized because it's more successful. The groups don't need each other. Mm-hmm. Each one is big enough on their own. That was not true. For instance, in Chicago, the Polar Mizrahi and the Aguda and every it was all one pot because we were the only Shomer Shabbos in town. So there was one day school that had to service everybody. Right. If that's the case, then you can't, so to speak, move to any extremes. I had a conversation with uh, one of uh, one of the Rosh Hashivas in America who's on all the Vads and all the Moetzeses, and I told him the following. I live in an out-of-town community, Houston, where we have one school, one Torah school, one Torah Masorah school. There's a modern school and a Chabad school, but the main yeshiva-oriented school. So I said, listen, this is how I see it. If I work really hard and, and build the infrastructure of my city and embrace the Yunga Light and make sure that my school is as welcoming as I can to B'nai Torah, so the community will grow and more B'nai Torah will move into town. And if I'm really successful, so many will move into town that they'll break away, open their new school, and call me a Shagitz. That's I right. Said, how, how is that? What do you want from me? How could that be my goal? That's like shooting myself in the foot. So he looked at me and he said... He didn't have anything to say. He's like, I hear, I hear. Well, that's the problem from time immemorial. When you are successful, those who you're successful with will desert you. Anybody that is that has uh, dealt with Bali Chuva, let's say, mm. and created a, a, a for Bali Chuva institutions, will tell you that once they become Bali Chuva, they don't want to have anything to do with you. Is that a chisarim? Well, I think it's. Uh, I think that's a lot of ingratitude. But should they hamper their growth because 
you started them off. You don't have to hamper your growth. You're measuring growth uh, differently. Mm -hmm. Who says that's growth? Well, that's why I'm torn. Like in a in a community that's ready to open a cheder shivaktana type of thing, where certain values are focused on more, that ostensibly is is a growth in ruchnius over a community school. I I guess. If the community is large enough to, to maintain it, uh, my objection is that people feel it's my way or the highway. There's room for a lot of things. Right. I guess the question is, is is there a value in unity when it requires you to sacrifice the unity. purity of your own ideology? There's a difference between unity and conformity. That's the difference. Can you, can you unpack I that can a little? Have, I can have unity with the uh, Groups that are not that are not aligned with me uh, politically or hashkofically, but uh, the problem is the conformity. If I don't conform to them, so do, you know, they don't conform to me. I have nothing to say to them. That's not true. I think when it comes to chinuch, people feel that they need to give over to their children a pure message that's very singular. Is that true? I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you need to, does it work? A pluralistic chinuch, and I don't mean pluralistic to include non-Torah views. I just mean even within the Torah world. Is that a bad chinuch? Is that a, a, a watered down chinuch? I don't think so. Again, I don't see any way that's the one way. Mm-hmm. I see uh, successes and failures in all of the groupings. I don't see any magic bullets. A lot of it depends on the fact that there's a lot of money around. How so? Without a lot of money around, you have a lot more unity. Right, because we'd be forced to play nicely in the sandbox. That's right. There's a uh, a lot of talk in the last 20 years about youth at risk and uh, students who are struggling, especially yeshivas that are open, and different people point to different things as causes, etc., I once heard Moshe Bain, who's the head of the OU, he was the president until uh, recently, and he said, listen, every society has a percentage of, of people who struggle. It's, it's not indicative of a dysfunction. I'm wondering, do you think that the rise or the numbers of students who are not successful in our system is indicative of some issue that we need to address, or is it part of the natural flow of society? It's both. What do you think some of the issues are? certain are... imperfections. If God forbid you have a bad Rebbe, you're never going to want to learn Gemara again in your life. But on the other hand, uh, it's always a spectrum. And there always will be people at the end of the spectrum. And if they want to leave, then you can't stop them. And again, it's society. All of society is pulling them. Right. But wasn't that the case for every part of our every history? Generation, every generation. Like, you think it was easy to do you know, better than me? Most of the Jewish world became secular. How did yeah. that happen? Right. And they had bigger Nolan than, uh, you know. Right. In, in the same shtetl that created Eurobaim in, in, in... Yeah, created the communists. Right. And the pull was tremendous then. So I don't know. If it, right. Is it the internet is worse than the Haskalah? I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, it's hard to believe. One, one of the things that's developed as a result of it is... This sort of unconditional love for children and making sure schools are full of love. And there's a book published about the right train called Just Love Them. Some people criticize that as being too soft, not rigor and not holding kids accountable enough. How, how do you feel that balance should be made 
And what did you experience from your Rebbeim about the unconditional love versus pushing people to sort of break their comfort zone? My Rebbeim were both. They gave you unconditional love, but if you didn't know the Gemara, you got an F, what is called uh, tough love, okay? Right. Do you think that we need to adjust that today because the Dar is uh, softer? Well, I think discipline is always very important. All of Judaism is basically self-discipline. If you can't discipline yourself, if you can't discipline your time, uh, then, uh, you know, it's hard to be a Jew. So the, you're saying the Chinuch system needs to have that element of discipline just to prepare someone for getting up for chakras. you got to prepare them for life. Right. I mean, the greatest thing about Israel is that it has an army. So uh, 70% of the population uh, already has a sense of discipline. I don't advocate that that's the way to do it, but that's, so to speak, the uh, the result. And that's why you have a, a reliable workforce and you more or less a unified citizenry that fights about politics, but that's not that's not the issue here. It's the issue of the New York Times, but it's not the issue. It's, it's something that people don't necessarily notice, that the impact of having an army means that every citizen has gone through three years of structure and accountability. Yeah, at least a year and a half of structure. Right. You got the heads there, right? Right. Well, I hope you, you see that. You get up in the morning and you have to do this, and you, have to, mm. and you don't want to do it, and you have to do it. That's life. Who are some of the greatest mechanchim that you met, that you've you know, modeled yourself off of, besides your grandfather? He was a great mechanic? I know he was a fundraiser. And- he understood yeshivas better than anybody else. Really interesting. And, how, did, uh, how did you know that? I spent years with him in Miami Beach. He was a very kind mentor of mine. And, in Philip, uh, or just in, in general, probably, right? In general, but it, general is Chinuch, too. And uh, Yaakov was a great, great influence. Rabbi Alexander Rosenberg, who held it, who uh, founded the OU Kashmir, was a great influence. You know, people of stature. You've always taught history, and history has been an important part of your uh, your world. I'm wondering, why do you think it's so important that we teach history to children? Because then that will give them something to fall back upon. The realization that somehow we've been here before, that uh, our problems are not as unique as we make them out to be. And also it teaches the power of an individual. History is made up of individuals. You have to try and make a child feel special. He makes a difference. History can do that. The last question, Rabbi Wine. If you had a million dollars to for Chinuch, for Chinuch, what would you do to bolster Chinuch with that money? I would uh, spend it to recruit more Jews to go to Jewish schools and in the Jewish schools to go into Jewish education. Chazal said, "Amidu Talmidim Harbe." I think that that remains a great goal. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I got to feel being much and thank you. All the best. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with my Rebbe, Rabbi Beryl Wine, as much as I did, as we explored some of the major influences that impacted him in his youth and as he grew up, the great Gedolim that he met, and the other values that he took as he created Yeshiva Sharei Torah and his Rabbanos. It was a great example of someone who could weave the history and the past both in our immediate past and the far past, into creating a brighter future for Klai Yisrael, where Wine's career is certainly one that spans many decades, where he continuously made investments and did his best to merge the worlds that were and that are. 
And anyone involved in Jewish education has that very task in front of us where we're trying to take the values that we grew up with, the values that Klai Yisrael have held so close for so long, and find ways to ensure that we are imparting them properly on the next generation so Klai Yisrael will be built strong and sturdy for a bright future. And Rabbi Wine's career is certainly an example of someone who has done that for many, many years, taking our rich history, taking our rich experiences, both on a personal level and on a community level, and creating opportunities for the Klai Yisrael now and in the future to connect to those, whether it be through his educational platforms such as Shari Torah, as a Rav in his, in his shul in Muncie, or through the Destiny Foundation where he is creating audio and video and other multimedia materials that are full of our rich history to connect people and give them an opportunity to base their future on our rich past. Thank you so much for joining us. You could find out more about Rabbi Wine's programs through the Destiny Foundation. There'll be the website link in our notes. And as all great podcasts, and we ask you to rate us with a five-star, maybe share us with a friend or family that aren't aware of the Chinuch Today podcast. And that way we'll be able to continue our great work of spreading Chinuch innovation ideas and building Torah for the future. Thank you so much. This is your Achmiel Garfield wishing you a wonderful day.